Today's episode of The Big Picture is brought to you by An American Pickle. An American Pickle stars Seth Rogen as Herschel Greenbaum, a 1920s American immigrant who was accidentally brined in a vat of pickles for 100 years, emerging in present-day New York City. Seth Rogen also plays Herschel's only surviving relative, his great-grandson Ben, a mild-mannered computer coder living in Brooklyn. The movie is rated PG-13. You can stream the new Max original and American Pickle August 6th, only on HBO Max. Sean Fennessy. I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about the year 2010. Why 2010? Well, it's been 10 years since 2010, 10 long years in the life cycle of American movies. A lot has changed in that time. Earlier this week, we celebrated the decade anniversary of Scott Pilgrim vs. the World with a special episode. It's a movie that predicted a lot of what would come to be accepted as normal in movies. But what else happened in that year in movies? How can we have a fun conversation that doesn't just rehash the release schedule on this show? Well, I got an idea. It was inspired by a listener from Melbourne, Australia named Evan Valance, who shared with me via Twitter a movie draft of his own design in which he and friends looked at the broad history of movies and picked their favorites in a bunch of categories. So best best picture winner, best sports movie, etc. So I figured for this episode, we could tweak the game to focus solely on one year and then put us to some difficult decisions. And then the listeners could decide who drafted the best 2010 movie year. To help us, Chris Ryan is here. Hi, Chris. What's up, guys? How are you? Are you ready to compete with Amanda and I, Chris? Oh, absolutely. I feel like I actually feel like very confident in my uh, in my picks today. I feel like I went deep into the into the bag and got some really good stuff. Amanda, you're a very competitive person, as am I. How are you feeling about putting that competitiveness on display here on this show? I feel very excited, except for the fact that you keep changing the rules on us at the last minute. And I, I know already that there are going to be a lot of shenanigans and I'm going to fight back. I think that there's going to be an interesting, like strategic element to this, you know, allegiances that might change throughout the podcast. Chris, I'm watching you, you know, I, I typically, typically, I, you know, our alliance has worked out, see the Rango episode, but it's like, if you cross me. I, I'm ready. I also just want to say, I know Chris is feeling really confident, but I have actually done a pop culture draft with Chris before. And I got and, absolutely and I right vaporized. <laughs> yeah. And you had the first pick, right? Yeah. <laughs> because you were just in your own Chris world. And while I also like living in the Chris world, I feel confident in my ability to go up against, you know, Chris world in the, in, in the, arena of public opinion. Just so, so you guys I'm know, I, I, I cannot possibly express to you how, how, how much more competitive Sean and Amanda are than I am. Like, <laughs> it is honestly like the funniest thing in the world to me to watch them lose their minds over meaningless games while I'm chilling. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, I'm actually laughing. I'm not even mad. Okay. Uh, yeah, perhaps in the director's commentary of this episode of this show, we can talk about uh, what psychological damage has been wrought upon us that has made us so competitive. <laughs> but that's not what we're going to do here. Um, I thought actually what it would be fun to do would be to talk about the movies of 2010, the shape of that year, before we get into the draft, and then also maybe reveal some allegiances or some strategy that some of us will bring into the draft. So let's talk about 2010. 
um, big storylines. I think we've talked about this, the three of us, many times on this show. We've talked about how the social network is sort of, I think all three of us agree it is the is the movie of 2010 in many ways and was robbed of Best Picture at the Oscars for the King's Speech. Um, is there anything that you guys feel like we need to add beyond that conversation, which we've had multiple times? Just that we're going to have it again because we're coming up on the 10-year anniversary of that movie and then of that Oscar travesty. Yeah, it just uh, it, that that's the movie that has aged the best out of this year. That's the movie that defined the decade that came. That's still, I think you could make the argument is still Fincher's best movie. It's still Sorkin's best script. It was just, it was a real, real high watermark. So no, no debate, no confusion. I think we'll probably all be jockeying pretty hard for the social network in our drafting strategy. Although maybe not. Maybe, maybe, and where it gets drafted and in what category? Who can tell? Who can say, Sean? Okay. So we won't say anything further about that specifically. This is next conversation is important. Um, I wanted to talk about Leonardo DiCaprio in the year 2010. This is a, a you could make the case this is his greatest year. And it's because he was the star of Inception and Shutter Island, both of which opened in, in 2010. And these two movies have a lot in common. They're frequently compared. Um, I want to be careful about how I discuss the movie Inception uh, because it has gotten me into some trouble in the past. But Chris, I you know you you went back and looked at at Shutter Island last night. I know, I mean, I'm not sure if you had a chance to revisit it before this conversation, but I was quite blown away by it. And I'm I'm trying to wrap my head around why Leo made two dead wife movies in the same year, even though he's never been married. Um, <laughs> I think. <laughs> <laughs> cause and effect there. <laughs> That's true. And also just get a sense of kind of where we think the popular consensus is on these two movies and then also kind of what that means for for Leo and for both the way that we remember both of these movies. Chris, what do you think? I mean, the the way in which these movies wind up being intertwined uh, after rewatching Shutter Island uh, is really striking. I have to say, I was a huge fan of the Shutter Island book, which is written by Dennis Lehane and came out after Mystic River. And it was like a big paperback my my wife Phoebe and I read it like together and it was like this really exciting I think we both we were on vacation we read it and we were both just like have you gotten this page yet have you gotten to this page yet and then the movie was a little bit of a letdown because the movie um sort of immediately plays up the weirdness of what is happening to the Teddy Daniels character and 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 I think plays the story and the twist a lot a lot differently 10 years later I don't think I've seen this movie since I saw it in the theaters I was up until two in the morning last night. I was so blown away by it. I think we started it at like 9.30 and I was just like, this is absolutely stunning. I can't believe people don't talk about Shutter Island this bit enough. As far as Leo goes, both of these films, both like neither really take place in our world. You know, they both take place in this hyper cinematic dream world, which is where I think Leo seems most best, like best suited. He doesn't really feel like a person who walks among us. I know he cares a lot about like the melting polarized caps and stuff like that, but like, and and he's a great subject of paparazzi photos, but his concerns and the things that he kind of works in, it doesn't really feel like everyday reality. And in some ways he is a perfect movie star because he is like, you know, the stuff of dreams. And these are two films that are largely concerned with dreams and nightmares. And I, I thought that I thought it was a really fascinating, fascinating year for him. Amanda, what what do you what do you think is the superior of the two? Which which do you prefer? 
Well, I did not revisit Shutter Island last night because I still remember watching it in 2010 and being freaked out and being like, that is not a thing that I need to ever relive again with all respect to Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio. I think also Inception is kind of the 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 last really pure mainstream Leo performance. It's the last time he's really in the center of pop culture, which has as much to do with pop culture as Leo. Though you do see after 2010 that he starts to... Um, work less, frankly, and just make fewer movies. And obviously, he has tremendous performances. I mean, Wolf of Wall Street is really up there for me in the Leo canon, as is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But in Inception is where he is maybe like back in the center for the first time since Titanic. And it's kind of like an interesting bookend to, to Leo as just really pop movie star. Yeah, it's a good point. So in the 2010s, he or in the 2000s, I should say, he stars in 10 films. And then in the 2010s, he only stars in six films. And he is he is slowing down a little bit, the amount of work that he does. Um, I also rewatched Inception last night just so I didn't come in here, um, you know, favoring something that I had spent more time with recently. And, you know, I think I, my, my feelings about Inception are, are kind of remain where they are, which is that there's like incredible stuff happening in that movie, but it doesn't ultimately congeal. And I felt the opposite about Shutter Island. I felt like the the intention and the execution, once you get past finding out what the, that movie is and is about, like what the twist is and what the framework is, and I didn't read the book like Chris did, so the first time I saw it, I was much more focused on, I think, how predictable I felt like most of the twists were. And then ultimately a little bit of, I, th- I think, Amanda, what you're referring to, which is just how like deeply traumatic and almost like insensitive insensitively portrayed a lot of the horror at the end of the film is. And then the second time around, which like Chris, this was the first time I had watched it since, um, since I saw it in theaters, I think I was just blown away by how sensitive and complex and um, earned the, like the sense of trauma was in the movie. And also just how beautiful it is and how it's totally kind of Scorsese going into his bag. Like there's so many, beautiful tricks in the film and the way that it's paced shots. And the shots, but, but the mute, I mean, the music is incredible throughout yeah. and it really, it really is a beautiful film and it's so hard to compare it to something like inception, which is just like an entertainment machine. You know, it's just meant to be like engaging you at every single moment and kind of like capturing your attention, but never really worrying too much about whether anything makes sense. I think things not making sense is actually the point of shutter Island, which is maybe why I connected with it a little bit more clearly. Fascinating for Leo, though. You know, he obviously goes on to win an Oscar a few years later, and, you know, he still has a few of his most iconic roles of all time. You still got Django. You still got The Wolf of Wall Street. You still got Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to come and The Revenant. But this kind of does feel, I agree, man. It feels like his apex in many ways. Um, as Because Shutter Island, too, we know Inception was a ma- major hit, but Shutter Island was a huge hit, too. I mean, this was a big box office hit released in the middle of February, and really only 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 Leo can do that. It also seems like unusual for Leo to be the star of a movie released in February. I would have longed for a Leo movie this past February. <laughs> a lot has changed in 10 years. One of the cool things about rewatching Shutter Island was just the way in which it was sort of a doorway into the year itself and re kind of considering a bunch of these films. I, I actually look forward to watching a bunch of them that I haven't seen in a while. I think my wife and I actually might fire up a little Winter's Bone this week. You know, nice little date night action. But you know, <laughs> that the sounds thing about not harrowing 20- at all. <laughs> the thing when you go through these 2010 movies and the list of it is how much you would willingly pay to go see almost 
but 75% of these things in theaters today. And I don't know whether or not that's an exercise that proves like movies were better 10 years ago or they were more reliably rewarding or consistent, consistently released. But to your point, Sean, about Shutter Island coming out in February, man, like, I don't know. I would, there's a lot of stuff on, on uh, from this year that I would happily pay to go see again. So I, I wanted to use that that observation, Chris, as a basically a broader point about the year. And Amanda, I'm curious what you think about this too, since we spend so much time talking about this idea on this show. But I thought that this was one of the kind of least interesting box office years in the decade, but also one of the last great years for adult movies. And the list of adult kind of mainstream, big, big top, big budget adult movies is impressive. So just this year, you get The Town, you get True Grit, Black Swan, The Fighter, Salt, Inception, and The Social Network, along with Shutter Island. And those were all kind of mainstream, well-known, successful films with movie stars. But if you look at the, the highest performing movies at the domestic box office in 2010, here's the, here's the list. Toy Story 3, Alice in Wonderland, Iron Man 2, The Twilight Saga Eclipse, Inception, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1, Despicable Me, Shrek Forever After, How to Train Your Dragon, The Karate Kid Remake, Clash of the Titans, Grown Ups, Tangled, Megamind, and The Last Airbender. That's a pretty gnarly list. And so the conclusion that I've drawn from this is ultimately that Hollywood has gotten better at infantilizing adults and their interests and making kind of like mainstream children's movies more palatable for adults. So basically from this point forward, you get much more sort of Marvel stuff at the top of the box office over time. And I don't think, I, as you guys know, I really like the Marvel movies, but it's interesting how they kind of abandoned the town-esque movies or the fighter or the social network in favor of essentially finding a way to work some of the adult themes into the IP-focused stuff, as opposed to delineating between IP stuff is for kids, then there's these adult movies. And this feels like a a little bit of a turning point in that respect. What do you think about that, Amanda? Yeah, I mean, this is a snapshot in a lot of ways of that transition, right? Because these these patterns and and movies themselves take, you know, two and three and four and five years to really come to fruition. So you can see here in this just absolutely miserable domestic box office top 10, which we'll revisit because of some of the rules that Sean has imposed on certain categories of the draft. Um, but you can see that Hollywood has figured out, okay, franchise IP, this is what is actually going to get people out. But um, they haven't quite made it to the to the MCU and to, and to giving up, sadly, on the adult films that we all really love. So there are still movies on here that I think we three think of as grown up going to the movie theater movies. It's funny, Chris, I found that when I was making my like list of potential draft picks, I really remembered the experience of being in the movie theaters for a lot of these movies. Like, and, and that shaped how I watched them. And, you know, I don't know how much of that is just nostalgia for, I haven't left my house in five months. And, mm-hmm. you know, I watch it all on this tear, this one TV, um, while my husband is like making coffee that I can, you know, and I, so I can't hear anything or whether it is because the movies themselves were more attuned to the fact that they were being seen in a theater. And it does feel like it's a bit of both. It does feel like the nature of the movies have changed. Yeah. I, I think it's worth noting that next, the, the following year is not bad either. You know, it's like Tinker Taylor, Bridesmaids, um, Margin Call, like there's Moneyball. There's plenty of like cool, what we would consider movies for adults the next year. 
And there's probably more in 2012 as well. I think the interesting turning point comes in 2013 when House of Cards comes out on Netflix. Because that is when I think a lot of the stuff that we see in the theaters in these first few years of the decade will start to more transition towards the streamers and the premium cable networks. And you start getting shows like True Detective and you start getting more and more prestige dramas that ordinarily would have been developed as feature scripts. That's just, but that's anecdotal. I, I can't say that that's like rooted in any kind of research, but it is an interesting data point. No, I think that's a good observation for, from both of you guys. And I, I think specifically what I identified here was there are a bunch of movies that made $100 million that are or somewhere between 85 and $150 million that were for adults in this time. And that that is that just doesn't really happen as frequently anymore. There are outliers. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood last year was an outlier in that respect. It was a huge hit, but it came with a brand name. And I don't know. I mean, we mourn that frequently. I don't know if it's necessarily worth you know, pouring out a little liquor for it in this exact moment. But I found it to be a fascinating example that like Black Swan, for example, was a big, big hit. And that just seems unlikely this year. Maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong about that, but it, it seems strange. And then the other thing, too, is that this is really the last year before the superhero dam bursts. The, the, the superhero movies that were released in this year is a pretty motley crew. It's kind of fascinating to think about when we chart the movie calendar across a year. Amanda, when you and I do an episode about the most anticipated movies, invariably there are between three and five superhero movies that I'm like, well, we're going to have to pay attention to this. This is going to be important. But in 2010, these are the superhero movies. Iron Man 2, arguably the worst MCU movie, although Chris, I'm sure you have some, you you could defend it in some ways. Um, (laughs) I I cannot. I cannot defend Mickey Rourke's accent in that movie. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then these are the others. Kick-Ass, Super, Megamind, Jonah Hex from your boy Josh Brolin and The Losers. That feels like that could have been the slate of movies released in like 1987, let alone 2010. And I, so I find that I find this to be a fascinating crux. Um, no X Men movie that year. No DC. No big DC movie other than Jonah Hex. Only one MCU movie and a forgettable one. So this is this does feel like a I don't, turning point. Maybe too strong a word, but it feels like a significant moment. I want to talk about the idea of cult classics from from this year as well. So obviously, spent some time talking about Scott Pilgrim, which was not a hit at the box office, though people clung to it pretty quickly. I am not a fan of Tron Legacy, um, but I, I learned via the internet that a lot of people are a big fan. Um, this reminds me a little bit of like the SpongeBob SquarePants conversation, where like I'm clearly just ten years too old to un- to, to feel that Tron Legacy matters, but everybody that is sub thirty. It's like, you don't, you don't get it. This movie rules. I assume you guys don't care about Tron Legacy. I just always assume that the, with no disrespect intended to people who like Tron Legacy, you know how like when you were in college and like there might be a guy who had like a poster of the Shire in his dorm room. <laughs> I, I, I always thought like people who were to Tron Legacy were that guy, but like they had their movie instead of just a poster. It just feels incredibly like sees one movie once. <laughs> okay, great. Um, <laughs> Amanda, what are what are your cult classics from 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 2010? Well, I won't be giving any of the real cult classics away right now because I'm making a personal list. I mean, obviously, I do. I do want to say also that I do think I saw Tron Legacy, but I maybe I just like watched the trailer a bunch. This is interesting time. This was like this is uh, when I was blogging. I was like a pop culture movie blogger at Vulture in 2010, so I have like 
pieces of all of these, but it it blurs together in like what makes good content in 2010 internet, which is a funny way of looking at movies. Anyway, the only thing I wanted to isolate um, because I will not be featuring these on my list. I I don't want to speak for you guys. Um, it's a it's a big Catherine Heigl year. Do you remember mm-hmm. uh, when Catherine Heigl was in every movie? And I was reflecting yeah, on. I remember. A, <laughs> you remember Chris Ryan. <laughs> Um, and I was reflecting on the fact that Life as We Know It was recently not just on Netflix, but was kind of in the Netflix top 10 movies for a long time. It was kind of when that feature debuted, Life as We Know It was like really in the mix for reasons that I don't understand. But I, to me, a renewed interest, I, like there are definitely, there's a genre of Katherine Heigl really acid rom-com that weren't received super well at the time, but people seem to still like for some reason. Just throwing it out there. It was a simpler time when when yeah. extremely unlikable people could be movie stars. You know, you remember that, Chris? Yeah. I mean, I didn't. I never found her unlikable. I always thought that she was misread by society <laughs> yeah. at large. Um, she seems like a really fun hang. Uh, and I don't really like love her movies. Uh, the cult classics from this year for me are a lot of the genre stuff, predictably. There was a lot of really good um, horror, action, and crime films from this year, but I'll, I'll save some of those in case they they pop up in some other categories. This episode of The Big Picture is brought to you by An American Pickle. An American Pickle stars Seth Rogen as Herschel Greenbaum, a 1920s American immigrant who was accidentally brined in a vat of pickles for 100 years emerging in present-day New York City. Seth Rogen also plays Herschel's only surviving relative, his great-grandson Ben, a mild-mannered computer coder living in Brooklyn. While not your typical Seth Rogen comedy, an American Pickle tells the heartwarming story of two men from different generations who must learn the true meaning of family. From the producers of The Disaster Artist and 5050 comes an American Pickle, streaming August 6th only on HBO Max, rated PG-13. Stream the new Max original and American Pickle August 6th only on HBO Max. Let's just jump to the draft, shall we? So you want to sure. explain how this works? Yeah, people. I'm going to explain how it works. So <laughs> <laughs> what we what we have is we have six categories. So each of us will get a chance to pick one movie from that category. What we need to do is settle on a draft order here. So we're going to we're going to play a couple of games to determine the draft order. Once we've chosen all of our films, we're going to put those films on the internet, our team that is being built, our team of six, and we're going to let the fine listeners of this program vote on who chose the best team. Now, and you I guys, don't, just because I didn't like Tron doesn't mean you can't vote for me. Um, I would. What, what I want people to do is cancel Chris because he disrespected Tron and, and vote for me or maybe Amanda, but probably just me. Um, okay. okay, so to, to determine the draft order, here's what we're going to do. We're going to play first a little game of rock, paper, scissors where the three of us are going to throw either a one or a two out. And whoever is the odd person out, let's say, for example, both two two people throw out a two and one person throws out a a one. The person who's thrown out a one gets to go first. After that, we'll flip a coin between the two remaining people and the winner of the coin flip will pick second. The loser of the coin flip will pick third. Understood? Uh Uh-huh. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. If we can't figure this out, we have no business doing this draft. <laughs> so let's okay. go. So it's one, one, two, rock, three, paper, and scissors. then we throw out our, 
Okay. Yeah, yes. One, on three. Two. Wait, three. wait, hold on. <laughs> what? No, stop. You were. You Chris, get it together. Right into it, okay? Chris. Okay. Is everybody ready? And now you can count, Chris. One, two, three. Okay. So I have the one, which means I pick first. There are two twos. Right. Amanda this has a, a two. Disaster. Chris has a two. I'm going up first of all. Next, Bobby Wagner, please join us quickly so that you can flip a coin between Chris Ryan and Amanda to determine who picks second and who picks third. We have a coin flipping app visible on oh, our screen. Oh, a virtual coin flip. Okay. Bobby is going to click flip. And we're Amanda, going to you see- call it. I was going to say you call it since you're the guest. Okay, sure. Uh, I'm calling yeah. it heads. Okay. Here we Here go. comes the flip. Okay. That means Chris Ryan picks second. Amanda picks third. Amanda is okay. behind the eight ball already. How are you? How are you feeling, Amanda? Well, are, fine. You, are you are you struggling? Well, is, so should we explain the snake draft aspect of this? Right. Yes. So this will be a snake draft, Me, meaning I will I will get the first overall pick. Chris will get the second overall pick. Amanda will get the third overall pick, and then in the next category we will snake back, and Amanda will get the first pick, and we'll go That's backwards. Right. So, this is very complicated. I hope everyone listening understands. Do you guys understand? Do you guys feel comfortable? Do you feel ready to pick? Bobby says that I should have the option to take number three since it's a better pick to pick twice in a row. IMO. But I'm gonna I'm gonna give that to Amanda. It's okay. I like I like hitting in the tool hole. I mean that Bobby, again, you're like you can't be like Sean here. The rules have to be established <laughs> before we start the draft, okay? I think it's fine. I think Chris should go second. I think Amanda should go third, and then Amanda should go fourth. We're all going to pick such different movies. This isn't going to matter. This is about. This is not going to be about because, like, I think there are a couple that actually do matter, but it's fine. I think, for example, the first category, it's going to matter. But that's okay. So the first category is drama, correct? Mm -hmm. The first category is drama. Do 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 you think it is worthwhile to talk through all the categories first, or should we just let them come come as they may? I I think it would be useful for everyone to have a sense of, of what's coming because there might be some classification discussion. And in that sense, it, it's only fair for the, the listeners at home to know what's what. I think you make a great point. Here are the six categories that we've chosen for the 2010 movie draft. By First we, ca- we mean Sean, okay? We, meaning me, the royal we. First category, <laughs> first category is pointed out by Amanda is drama. The second category is comedy or horror. The third category is blockbuster. The rule for blockbuster is that this film must have earned $100 million at the domestic box office. The fifth category is... something, Amanda. I, Go ahead, I was going to boo, but I'll do it later. I'll save okay. it. The fifth category is animated or foreign language film. The sixth category is a wild card. You can pick anything you want. The seventh category is sequel. You have to choose a sequel. Okay. I think I've done a fairly good job of picking picking movie types. I'm just going to put that out there right now. I have the first <laughs> overall pick, which is just Great. extraordinary news Not for rigged me. at all. And I yeah. will pick with my first pick overall, The Social Network, the best film of 2010 and of the 2010s. There we go. Chris, num- pick number two in drama falls to you. <sighs> my number wow. two, for number two, I'm going to pick Never Let Me Go. Wow. What? Wow. wow. Yeah. I've never talked with you about this movie or this book, actually, which uh, I, which wrecked me. 
but go. It's your pick. No, I mean, I think that um, we talk about talked a little bit about like whether or not they make movies for adults anymore. And I think that there have been some efforts by people like Alex Garland over the years to kind of revive sci-fi-ish adult dramas. But this is sort of a um, a higher level of all of that. It stars Carrie Mulligan and Keira Knightley and Andrew Garfield. Um, and I just, it's based on the Kaz Ishiguro novel. And I, I just found it to be such a deeply moving movie. I mean, Mark Romanek was, is like this huge music video director who never quite, I don't think, put it together uh, in the feature film department, but is an incredible visual stylist. I actually think that I had like overly high expectations for this film going into it. And then in like rewatching it a few years ago, I just found myself really falling in love with it. I'm playing also very strictly by the rules here. So I'm curious to see who Amanda picks for drama. Because mm-hmm. I I was I have a lot of movies that I think are dramatic, but I have put in different categories. So ultimately, this draft will probably be more about what category you're filing things under. So never let me go is my pick here. I just I just an extraordinary pick. I I you could have picked any film that was released that had dramatic elements from 2010, and you chose a very good movie, a movie that I like, a movie that is now I think we we overuse the phrase underrated, but I think is underrated and features great performances. But I, I, you could have given me twenty guesses, and I would have never guessed that that would be your first pick. So I, I, like I to guess keep kudos, people on their Chris. toes. <laughs> also, just tremendous sweaters in that movie, among other things. The sweaters have really stayed with me. What a year um, for Andrew Garfield, too, huh? Yeah, it was oh, very God, special year for him. Heartbreaking in that movie. Yeah, Amanda, you're up. Chris kind of predicted some of the elements shaping my pick. Uh, which will, uh, I was going to pick the social network. Let's, let's just all be honest, but I'm number three. And so I will be picking The Town, directed by Ben Affleck, which this movie rules. Uh, rewatched it last night, and I was thinking a lot in looking back at 2010 about why do we talk so much about The Fighter instead of The Town? And specifically at the Oscars, which just The Fighter was all over the place, and The Fighter is like a perfectly nice movie. And But if you want to talk about Boston movies about working class guys maybe learning some things about themselves where while cinematic hijinks are happening off screen, it's the town for me. I think that this movie has incredible performances, specifically your boy Jeremy Renner, Chris Ryan, (laughs) and, you know, a great script, dialogue, one of the great heists. It'll be eclipsed the next year by the Fast Five uh, safe heist, but I mean... Robbing Fenway is pretty good as far as Boston things go. I'm not even like a huge baseball person. And just a really, a core Ben Affleck text, which is obviously the, you know, great area of study of my life. So I just, I love this movie. It's it's so good. And speaking of, you know, movies for adults that they just don't make anymore in this way, that I think the town is always like one of our top examples. So that's it for me. Good pick. You're up again, Amanda. You have the first pick in the comedy and horror category. Okay, that's great. It will surprise no one that I'm going with a comedy. Um, Easy A, directed by Will Gluck and uh, starring Emma Stone. Talk about uh, breakout performances. This is a really lovely teen comedy that also adults can enjoy. And... You know, it owes a huge debt to all the movies of the 80s, which I think everyone on this podcast was really shaped by. But it's it's smart and knowledgeable in those references. It's an homage. 
And some of the really underrated movie parents in Stanley Tucci and Patricia Clarkson. I don't know whether you guys remember that aspect of the movie, but great stuff. And I just, it's, it's smart. It's funny. It actually, you know, made me laugh and is also uh, relatively, it's, it's still respectful and kind of heartwarming to everybody, which is kind of the, the comedy that I go for. So easy A. Listeners of this show know where I stand on Emma Stone. She is the chosen one. Yeah. Really good pick. Chris, comedy or horror? This is challenging for you because you're a hilarious person who is obsessed with horror movies. So I'm fascinated to know which direction you're going. I'm going with the funniest movie of the year. That's Blue Valentine. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what? I feel like I have a battery in my back. I'm going to do me. I'm going to pick Jackass 3D. Wow. Oh my God. Oh my God. One oh my of the all time greatest experiences I've ever had in a movie theater. <laughs> Tears of joy streaming down my face. What a, what a testament to 3D technology. What a testament to Spike Jones. I fucking love the Jackass movies. And I remember, like, honestly, almost going into cardiac arrest watching this movie. So I'm going to go with Jackass 3D. Chris, you are <laughs> you are b- building the bad news bears. It's an extraordinary thing. Never let me go. Jackass Chris, 3D double feature. I know. Let me can I just say something? Can I say something two rounds in to Chris Ryan, who I love and who's letting his light shine? And you know what, Chris? That's what I always love about you. And and I think it's an extraordinary reflection of your taste. And I think that the public deserves to have access to that on a regular basis. But I just need you to keep in mind also that we're trying to defeat Sean. Okay? So just like in the next four rounds, I want you to think about what it means to be, I be you. Honest? And also what it means to let Sean win. I feel like I was too safe going into this because I had like the town is a, it's got to be a blockbuster. Like I have to like really play yeah, by the rules. Yeah, but we got screwed on that by Sean Fennessy because it's it only made like, it did not make a hundred million domestic box office, which is the rule. So you well, got to think ahead, my guy. So now I'm just pivoting to, to chaos and this is, and oh, I'm representing okay. myself. Chris! Amanda, watch, I know. watch what happens, man. Twitter will, will back me up on this. <laughs> all my Carrie Mulligan heads all the Carrie Mulligan bots and all the Steve-O bots are going to come put their finger on the scale for this one. Uh, as okay. usual, playing right into my hands. I love it. My pick for uh, comedy or horror is Scott Pilgrim versus the world. If you want to hear how I feel about it, you can listen to the last episode of this show. I do not need to pontificate. Um, it also subtly operates as like five or six other genres of movies, so I feel good about this pick. I also get the first pick in Blockbuster must earn $100 million at the domestic box office. And my pick is Inception, which is a movie that people think I hate, but I don't hate. I like it just fine. And it's my pick for Blockbuster. Boom. This worked out perfectly in my favor. Cool. Chris, you're up. Blockbuster. So I'm doing Blockbuster, huh? I love Shutter Island. As we just talked about. But it would I'm be gonna, funny if you took it just to so that Sean can't pick it in a later category. I'm just pointing that out to you. I'm going to take Shutter Island. Okay. Yes! I watched so it last you, night. Is it a Miracle spike of pick? a movie. No, I, it's, it was between this and another film uh, that was right there. And uh, I think recency bias is pointing me towards Shutter Island as a blockbuster. I think it's a strong pick. Um, I'm fascinated to know what Amanda picks because I feel like she's been boxed in a little bit here. 
I, I was, and I want to go on record that I did have Shutter Island on in my back pocket as a spite pick, um, based on your conversations and tweeting. So wait, last night. Amanda, Amanda. Yeah, yeah, but I have a different. Should spite I pick trade ready. down with you then? No, whoa, no, whoa, because whoa. I have another. Sp- I have another spite pick ready. Okay, I have well, another we... spite pick that is also and and Chris, Chris, this is a spite pick, so you can't turn on me, okay? Because there are elements of it that you're gonna think are a betrayal, but no. you got to think of the greater good. Never. Okay. Yeah. My blockbuster is Toy Story 3. Oh, boy. Yep. Wow. There you that go, is, Sean. Yep. That is... I know. Chris, Chris, I told you, I see that face, but, and you got to think through it, but I was boxed in. I would have liked to pick either The Town or, frankly, Unstoppable, but Sean made that impossible at the 11th hour, by the way. The $100 million domestic box office rule was only added in last night after no, I it made was. my after, draft thing. After the rule, Sean came through, Moscow Sean, with like a late... <laughs> inning change to procedure right. classic parliamentary bullshit so all right i mean if you can draw it it can't happen but that I, i'll allow it so let's just put this on the record me known inception hater has chosen inception and amanda mm-hmm. known animated movie disliker has chosen toy story 3 and chris ryan yes um, mentally ill person who believes he is living a different life has chosen shutter island so it's perfect. This is a perfect category. I'm so glad I changed mm-hmm. the rules on Blockbuster because it made for these great selections. The okay. next category well, is animated foreign. Next category is animated foreign language. Amanda, you just picked an animated movie, but you have the first pick in I this did. category. I did, and so you know, I had another movie in my back pocket that I I doubt we'll talk about, which is sad because though, though maybe you guys will pick one. I I really considered doing a Minions bit. Uh, and, you know, explaining what minions are to Chris. Chris, do you know what minions are? Yeah, they're the yellow thing that looms over the valley here in Los Angeles. Yeah, so there we go. Thank you for understanding minions in, in my terms. But I, I'm not going to do uh, Despicable Me. I'm going to do I Am Love um, by Luca Guadagnino, which, you know, it, well, I was talking about movies remembering where you were when you saw them, and I have such a vivid memory of seeing this uh, at BAM, I believe, in Brooklyn, by myself, because my dad had somehow seen I Am Love and was like, this is the best movie I've ever seen. You have to go see it. And so I just remember, and I think the theater was pretty empty. I must have gone on like a summer afternoon and just letting just the the sights and really the sounds of that of, of that score and all of the Italy and the melodrama wash over me. And um, it has really stayed with me. In a great movie. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it. Great pick. One thing I want to cite rules-wise throughout this conversation is that these are films that were released in the United States in the year 2010. Yes. We, yes. we should have said that at the top of this conversation. I Am Love, for example, and I think other films that may apply to this category could have been released in at Cannes in 2009 or shown up in Europe in theaters. We're talking about the United States 2010 release dates. Chris, animated or foreign language film, I assume you're going with Megamind the 2010 animated film starring Will Ferrell. Is that right? Um, <laughs> I was hoping... Uh, that was my second drama pick. Okay. Uh, <laughs> this one's for my real CR heads. Okay, if, you've okay. been, if you've been Chris, down with we me... we talked about this. If you've been down with me since day one, you know what I'm about. So I'm going with a profit. Mm. Uh, I thought you would go in one. another direction. Ex- explain a profit to folks. One of the best crime films of the decade. Absolutely 
like colossal performance from Tahar Rahim in this film. It's about uh, a guy, an Algerian guy in Paris or in France who gets arrested and becomes sort of transformed into a like mega criminal in prison and becomes an assassin and like a drug dealer um, directed by Jacques Odiard. And it is just one of the grittiest, most like epic crime films of, of the decade. It, it's, it's, it's really still like a titanic achievement. First of all, Chris, I want to compliment your pronunciation game throughout that. Thanks, man. Explanation that was extremely strong. Uh, secondly, I'm, I'm shocked that you didn't pick Carlos, which is a film I know you're a huge fan of, Olivier Assayas' movie. And last night I did ask a procedural question about how much English was going to be allowed to be in, in, a, in a foreign film. And you did allow it, but... Or I think you didn't even answer, but I took it to be you allowing it. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I think that a prophet has just stayed with me a little bit more strongly than Carlos. Okay, strong pick. My pick is Dogtooth. This is the breakout film from Yorgos Lanthimos, um, the Greek filmmaker who makes incredibly unnerving, fascinating, absurdist comedy dramas. American moviegoers may be most familiar with his movie, The Favorite, or maybe The Lobster. This is the movie that put him on the map in many ways. And man, is this one of the quarantine movies of our time? The way that the story of this movie unfolds is almost exactly as life feels in quarantine, in which the words that we think are the right words to use to describe things are frequently not. We seem to be living in a simulated experience that is guided by people who don't necessarily care about us. The story is a very intimate tale of a, a family who rarely leave their home and a couple of parents who teach their children a way of life, but not an, a normal accepted way of life. And the language that they use and the actions that they take and the way that they live together is confounding and disorienting. And this movie is incredibly funny, but also quite upsetting simultaneously and essentially announced really one of the great filmmakers of the next 10 years. Uh, I, I look forward to Yorgos's work in the future. If you haven't seen Dogtooth, I would highly recommend you check it out. So those are our picks for animated foreign language. None of us picked an animated movie, which I can't say is shocking for you guys. Amanda, you put the hard block on me with Toy Story 3. That's a real shame. Yep. But then we, well, then, strategy. We, then we go to, we go to the next category. Um, so for my pick for wildcard, I'm going with exit through the gift shop. You're, I mean, as a guy, it, can you can you just like even begin to describe the what Banksy has meant to you? <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I'm a bit speechless by that setup. Um, I would I would say that Banksy has meant nothing to me, which is part of the reason why I like this film so much. I don't necessarily care about the artwork of the 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 radical anonymous artist Banksy. I do really like this movie because of what it does in terms of stretching documentary form and trying to get a sense of what is and is not real. Um, the street artist Banksy, of course, is a very well-known British figure who also no one truly knows, who is known to you know create very radical and um, subversive street art, uh, largely throughout Europe. And the movie ostensibly tracks his work and the work of uh, another artist who names himself Mr. Brainwash. But mm. what is real and what is fake in the movie is kind of difficult to wrap your mind around. It's like a it's a peak stunt movie. I think this was an interesting year for stunt movies. You know, Chris, you talked about Jackass 3D and the idea of fucking with the audience. I think this was a high time for that moment. Things in 2010, 
you know, we were right smack in the middle of the Obama era. And just things tr- weren't per- we were just trash humping, man. We just were trash, trash humping. humping. Yeah. Trash humpers was happening that year. Things seemed, um, if not perfect, a little bit easier, a little bit calmer, a little bit less transgressive. And this is the rare movie, I think, that was messing with our expectations. So I'm going exit through the gift shop with my wild card. Chris, you you have the floor. When I first saw that you put wild card down as a category, my my brain went in like a million different directions because that could mean so many different things. And if you'll allow me, if we were being specific and saying wild cards could be even off-screen stuff, I would just want to say, this isn't my pick, but I would want to nominate the time in 2010 where Josh Brolin and Shia LaBeouf became day traders to promote Wall Street Money Never Sleeps. <laughs> and there was all these articles about how they had like Charles Schwab accounts and were doing like pullback theory on their on their on their hedge funds. And Shia was doing like interviews where he's like, I started my portfolio with 20 grand and now I have 300 grand. You know, it was like, and we were just like, let's get another article about this. Like it was just so sick. That was two years after the financial collapse. And we were like, dude, did you see Shia LaBeouf? It's just like, but that's not my pick. I, uh, my pick is Monsters. Mm. So this is a Gareth Edwards movie. I think it's one of, um, in some ways, one of the most impressive, like, you know, we, we, we throw around a lot of credit towards directors, uh, especially on the show, but in general, when we're talking about things, we assign a lot of authorial credit to the director. But this is really a, like a, 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 an incredible act of, of authorship by Gareth Edwards, who obviously went on to direct Rogue One and then um, the first Godzilla film. But he uh, he like shot this film. He did a lot of the special effects and production design on it. It's a movie um, set six years after an alien invasion in, uh, in the war- uh, on this planet. And uh, basically, aliens being on this planet has become somewhat commonplace, but still very dangerous. They're sort of dormant, but there. And Scoot McNary, in what is like his sort of breakout role, plays a photographer um, in Mexico who is uh, tasked with, he gets a job basically bringing a rich rich woman back to the States. And they'd go on like a motorcycle road trip throughout Mexico and throughout this kind of like uh, unknown zone where there are still like aliens kind of roaming around. It's like one of the most creative and intoxicating sci-fi movies you will see and it's really Edwards at his best because he understands scale in a way that very few directors do where he understands like the enormity of this stuff is actually best shown as a juxtaposition to very small like human stories. And I just always loved this movie. I remember it was on a very early Netflix streaming movie um, and that, that kind of caught on that way. But yeah, I just, I've always adored it. Great pick, Monsters. Chris, uh, You've only got one pick left. Amanda, you have two picks left. They're coming in succession. Your pick for Wildcard. This will surprise no one. Uh, mine is Somewhere, uh, directed by Sofia Coppola, who is a, one of my favorite directors. And Somewhere is, you know, like many of her movies, quiet. Not, not, a, not a ton of plot happens, but it's about um, a successful actor, Stephen Dorff, who is kind of between, played by Stephen Dorff, who is between projects. And so he lives at the Chateau Marmont and does kind of slightly dirtbag Hollywood actor things and then reconnects with his daughter, who is played by Elle Fanning. And so it's a little bit about a movie about Hollywood ennui and existence. And it's a little bit about 
uh, being the daughter of Francis Ford Coppola. And it is, I think, really lovingly shot and definitely had an influence on me uh, wanting to move to Los Angeles, which is a weird thing to say once you watch the movie. And I definitely don't spend as much time at the Chateau Marmont as Stephen Dorff does in this movie. But um, I think it is, you know, it's beautiful to look at and also uh, shows the way in which Sofia Coppola can kind of observe the world and, and make her point through the way she films it without actually saying a lot. And I find it really beautiful and, and, and ultimately a lovely father daughter story. So that is my pick. I'm, I was honestly a little nervous that one of you would take it out of spite. Can you imagine what would have happened if we had done that? I I actually, like I kind of prepared myself for it emotionally so that I would know where to channel my anger and my rage. I like I, in a, in a, I'm glad you didn't because I would have been really upset. But in a way, like I kind of think you guys are cowards for not taking it because I waited <laughs> until the. That I mean, like I left it to the fifth the perfect category. Summation of the no win. <laughs> I'm just saying it was very obvious that somewhere was going to be one of my picks, and it's a it's, and it's also an excellent movie. So okay, but that's fine. I got it. I'm thrilled. I love you, Sophia, forever. I know I like to needle you, but I don't like to tempt the devil. And uh, I think if, if, if Chris or I had chosen somewhere. It's way too have, early in the day to get into yeah. that big of a fight. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Good. Okay, I'm glad. Amanda, you're, you're, you have the, the, your last pick. It's in the sequel category. I got to say, I don't yeah. think this was a great year for sequels. So I'm fascinated to see what we do here. No, it was terrible. And and like, even like a lot of the, wouldn't it be funny if I just, you know, picked this to be a joke? Like if I picked the Twilight movie that was released this year, which was Eclipse, definitely the worst of the Twilight movies. Even really if you're going to lean in to the Twilight of it all. And by the way, I think the first Twilight uh, directed by Catherine Hardwick is very good. But it doesn't, it's like nothing happens. She just sits there and is like, well, this guy's like a, a wolf or whatever Jacob was. I don't remember. And this guy's a vampire. And what should I do? It sucks. Anyway, so I'm not doing that. I don't really think any of the sequels are good. I think that Toy Story 3 probably would have um, fit in this category, but I already took it. So I will be taking Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. Um, I I have read all the Harry Potter movies, and I really like them. I, I'm sorry. I've read all the books, and I really like them. I think it was interesting rewatching part of it um, yesterday because the movies are still on HBO Max, though they will be leaving HBO Max, which, you know, made a lot of news, I guess, you know. Streaming wars, but, um, and it's a bit harder to follow if you haven't read the books. And I think these movies in a lot of ways are uh, very much like for the fans and and for the, for the culture. And in a lot of ways, they uh, predict what's to come in terms of IP movies for the next, for the next decade. But I, I do really like those books. And again, speaking of fond memories of seeing movies, I went to a screening of this movie with my um, friend Willa Paskin, who I worked with at Vulture at the time. And it was pretty early in my time at New York Magazine, and I didn't know Willa that well. And so she like took me to the screening. And I think for six months afterwards, thought I was like the biggest geek culture person in the world because I was like so excited to see Harry Potter, which in retrospect is pretty funny, as anyone of these listener pod- as anyone who listens to this podcast would know. But yeah, Harry Potter. I, we could do worse. I think this movie is very good. I think I, I'm not as crazy about part two, but I think part one is really interesting. And it, it it's an unfortunate byproduct that of, of 
IP culture that we got these like two part finales in these movies, which I think is really stupid and unsatisfying. But I remember actually really enjoying seeing these. I enjoy the Harry Potter movies in general, too. I think they're all like as far as this stuff goes, they're pretty well made. This is the dark one where you have to deal with like all the the grief, a lot of the grief and loss, and like the really adult stakes before you get this the the fairy tale and frankly a little nonsensical Harry Potter ending. We don't really talk about that enough, or I, I mean, I don't. I still don't know I how it ends. How does it end? I don't I, really I, understand. You don't have to I mean, spoil it. It's, <laughs> Thanos I mean, comes wins. back. Oh, he does. <laughs> yeah, Thanos oh, comes man. back. He gets all the Infinity Stones, and then he goes toe to toe with Potter, and then he kills Potter, and that's the end. Okay. I mean, it's it's like, it's honestly not that different because instead of infinity stones, there are these things called horcruxes that they have to collect and then they use it and they put together and they kill the guy. But then he comes back for a second, but then he's dead again. At least I think. I I have to be honest, it's like a two ending situation, but it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I think all of the adult actors are very good. Harry Potter uh, child casting is, uh, and dealing with that several years later not the best it's not the best but that's okay chris sequels you're up um this was a really tough choice because on one hand i wanted to pick uh the trailer for predators which was so much better than the actual film was the robert rodriguez reboot of of predator um i am gonna cheat and instead of doing a strict sequel i'm going to choose a reboot uh and it's going to be ridley scott's robin hood hmm one okay. of the most outrageous casts you will ever come across in terms of like just top to bottom. We go Russell Crowe as Robin, Kate Blanchett as Marion, William Hurt coming off the bench as the, the bad guy along with Mark Strong. Oscar Isaac is in this movie as Prince John. He is completely without any safety on with this, this movie. Oscar Isaac, if you have not seen Oscar Isaac in this film, stop what you're doing and check it out. Max von Sydow, uh, Danny, uh, Danny Houston, Leah Seydoux, just an incredible cast. Uh, is this a good movie? You're, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like it, it's like a lot of these movies, the 07 to 12, even 13, 14 run of Ridley Scott is you get an Exodus, God and Kings, you get a counselor, you get Prometheus. I just find myself continually going back to them. Like I will watch Body of, of Lies like now. If you if 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 it's on, so were these movies technically good? I don't know, but Robin Hood was, I think, uh, you know, like we're going to reboot this, we're going to make a series of these. You know, Crow is back, Gladiator style, but this time with bows and arrows. It didn't really work out, but I, I still have, of all the other sequels this year, this is the one that I would actually watch. Chris, before I make my last pick, I want to do a little personal history. This is important. In 2010, before Robin Hood was set to come out, you and I were, as friends, were in the middle of a big Ridley Scott jag. We were talking a lot about Ridley Scott. We were very interested in his movies. We, of course, obviously both love them. I think you even more than me, but they've been a topic of conversation for 15 years between us. So we were looking forward to this movie. We went to go see this movie. And as has so often been the case with films like Black Hat, Miami Vice, objects of Chris Ryan affection, we would go to the movie together I would sit up and say, wow, that was shockingly bad. And then you would find ways to defend it for an hour. And this is a very memorable version of it because, and here's the personal history, you may or may not recall recording a test podcast in my basement in the year 2010. 
This was well before we worked together professionally. This was well before podcasting was in the mainstream of culture. This was something that you and I thought we could try (laughs) just to see if it would work out. I don't even know if we ever imagined giving it to anyone. I don't know where that file is right now. The topic of conversation was entirely about Ridley's work with Robin Hood as the premise. And look at us now. The secret is real. If you will it, it is no dream. That's all I have to say to you, Chris. And you, we were just two crazy kids doing it for the love of the game, too. You know what I mean? There was no, like, un, like cut out the middleman underwear ads to be reading. You know, there was no fame <laughs> and fortune in podcasting. We were doing it because we really cared about where we were taking the Robin Longstride canon. <laughs> uh, it's amazing what we've accomplished in that time, speaking on podcasts about mediocre How can Scott we get movies. that tape? I don't, Where I don't. do you think it is? Do you think it made the move? It's probably on a laptop that got completely fried by a virus Sean downloaded from Audio Galaxy or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, that basement in particular was was a real den of iniquity for nerds. It was stacked with CD jewel cases, far as the eye could see, and it was frequently flooding. There was almost always water <laughs> on the floor in that basement, in that <laughs> terrible apartment in Park Slope. So uh, I probably lost a time. But if anyone happens to come across it, um, if you if you hacked me in 2010 and you have your hands on it, uh, please don't hack me anymore. But maybe you could share it with Chris um, and we could go back and listen to how far we've come in 10 years. It's probably Chris. It's honestly probably exactly the 10 year anniversary. That's really wild. Guys, I'm just uh, reviewing my picks. It's going <laughs> to. There's going to be a review portion at the end. Yes. No, there's going to be a, like an extended review portion with annotation. Chris okay. Ryan, don't you worry. Go ahead. I have to make the final pick. And Chris has put me in a tough spot because he's already made good jokes about the two movies I'm choosing between. And those two movies are Wall Street Money Never Sleeps and Predators. Now, if those are the two picks I have to make, and we've already talked about how I'm not going to pick Iron Man 2. That wasn't good. I seriously thought about Step Up 3D. You guys seen Step Up 3D? Pretty, I had pretty, Step Up 3D on my short list. Yeah. Pretty good. Pretty good movie. Um, I'm pro Predators, Chris. More than just the trailer. I think Predators is fun. I think it doesn't have a great conclusion. It obviously doesn't live up to the greatness of the original film. But I think it's pretty nifty. Nimrod Antal's movie. But I'm going Wall Street Money Never Sleeps, and here's why. I'm in the midst of an Oliver Stone personal moment. Oliver Stone's memoir was released today or yesterday. And I'm very excited to read it. It's essentially... Um, the story of his life all the way up until his Oscar win for Platoon. So that includes all the films that he made in that time, his time serving in Vietnam, um, you know, his very complicated relationship with American history and with protest and with what he believes to be on the side of right. And also his writing career as a Hollywood screenwriter. You know, he also wrote movies like Scarface and Midnight Express and, um, you know, was a just a hugely celebrated writer and director in that time. Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps, one funniest movie title, I think of the decade. Money Never Sleeps is high comedy. Two, I love the what you're talking about with Shia and and Brolin day trading. That's great stuff. But three, it's like it's not a good film, but it is incredibly well made, as most Stone movies are, and deeply watchable. All of his movies, I find even his his quote unquote worst movies, I find to be amazingly watchable. U Turn, Alexander, um, it's Snowden, you know, a lot of those movies I think are, are, are not even that effective, but you know, you don't want to turn them off. And, um, as I, as I dive deep into the 15, 16 Oliver Stone film filmography, uh, money never sleeps jumps out. That's my last pick. That's the last pick of this game. 
So let's let's go to reckoning time. We're going to quickly recount the picks that we've made. And uh, <laughs> Chris, I think you know, I, con- I have, condolences. I may have been on Ambien for this. <laughs> <laughs> Every time you do this, you just kind of go into your own. It's nice. This is if I was uh, if I was like an actual GM drafting stuff. Three people would go back ten years from now and be like, "He was a fucking genius," but I would definitely get fired tonight. <laughs> um, I would be like the a- Sashi Brown. You know what I mean? Of like. I was thinking more David Kahn. This is this has got David Kahn, you know, passing over Steph Curry vibes all over it. But I, he, he, let's go team by team, okay? Um, Chris, we'll start with you. Here's your team. For drama, you chose Never Let Me Go. For comedy or horror, you chose Jackass 3D. For blockbuster, you chose Shutter Island. For animated foreign language, you chose A Prophet. For wildcard, you chose Monsters. And for sequel, you chose Robin Hood, which is not a sequel. <laughs> It's the it it's it's the never let me go Robin Hood that really makes it art. You know, you started and Cap ended stones. just like pure Chris Ryan. And I, never let me go is like what they'll write about for you yeah, just as a as a leadoff choice. Because you could have taken the town. You could have taken many other really successful grown-up I just don't, dramas. I didn't consider it a drama per se. <laughs> okay. Well, that's on you. <laughs> Strategy, you my guy. You could have Inception. You know, you could have... Uh, okay. Uh, Amanda, let's do your team. Uh, for drama, you chose okay. The Town. For comedy or horror, you chose Easy A. For blockbuster, you chose, spitefully, Toy Story 3. For animated or foreign language, you chose I Am Love. For wildcard, you chose Somewhere. And for sequel, you chose Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. Extremely Amanda picks. Very Amanda. I felt like they were they were both Amanda and also not the dumbest picks ever. Like, I tried to... <laughs> no, no offense to anyone else on the podcast. I, I've tried to, you know, play some strategy and also have some Amanda picks. Like, I didn't, for example, pick Morning Glory, which is a 2010 rom-com starring Rachel McAdams, Harrison Ford, and, and uh, Diane Keaton, which, like, I love. That is an Amanda cult classic. That's in a... Go watch that movie if you haven't seen it. It's completely delightful. But I'm not going to win with Morning Glory. And should I know I have, that. Should I have made rom-com a, a category? I thought about it. I don't think so. Well, I, you know, you could have fit it in comedy, but even by 2010, it's really waning. And it's like a lot of Katherine Heigl rom-coms and, 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 and Morning Glory didn't do that well, despite um, my father walking out of the theater and asking whether it won an Oscar, which is a real thing that happened. So it, at this point, it's just not really, this is the beginning of the death of the rom-com by 2010. At some point, we're going to have to have... I really want to do a James Brooks episode. You know, I've been so fascinated by the 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 this season of um, You Must Remember This on Polly Platt. And there's been a lot of focus on on the films of James Brooks. And 2010 is the How Do You Know year. And, and you know, James Brooks has this amazing, almost like platinum career of working on Mary Tyler Moore and Taxi and Broadcast News and Terms of Endearment. And he's made so many special things. He's a producer of The Simpsons. Unbelievable work. And how do you know I recall being one of the most unwatchable movies of the century? I still, I was saying to Amanda, I still remember where I was when it was like, James Brooks is back. And it's like, yes, James Brooks is back. And it was like, he's making a movie with Reese Witherspoon. I'm like, are you kidding me? And he's like, she's a softball player. (laughs) (laughs) And I I was like, what do you mean? And that is the plot. That is the plot. 
Guys, Chris made these jokes to me. So it's on Netflix right now. I went back and watched part of How Do You Know. I would say I made it about 45 minutes in. And then I was like, this this has not gotten any better. It was not that it was misunderstood in 2010. It made absolutely no sense, completely miscast. No one knows what they're doing. But then I went from watching How Do You Know to listening to the most recent episode of You Must Remember This, which is about I'll Do Anything. And protecting Brooks, but like it's... That was that was a rough one too for me personally. The the plot of How Do You Know reads like the seventh season of an ABC drama, where you're just like this this these people must be the children of the main characters of this show. Like, how does this working? It's very confusing. It's it's simultaneously the most well healed movie of all time. This is a movie written and directed by James L. Brooks. It stars Reese Witherspoon, Paul Rudd, Owen Wilson, Jack Nich- Nicholson, and Katherine Hahn. The score is by Hans Zimmer, and the film is shot by Janusz Kaminski. This movie costs $120 million to make, and nobody likes it. I don't know anybody who likes it. And everybody Can likes I, all of the people I'm involved in it. going to read the first few, few sentences of the plot. Softball player Lisa Jorgensen is devastated when she has left off team, the Team USA ro- roster. What? <laughs> Unsure what to do next, Lisa begins dating Maddie Reynolds, a pitcher for the Washington Nationals. Okay. She also receives an intriguing phone call from a young executive, George Madison, who is advised by a friend of Lisa's to give her a call. That's the plot of the movie. That is the plot of the movie. So strange. Just it, it's 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 very unusual. And to, to your point, Amanda, about rom-coms, it's just it's a very challenging time that this it, it, we were talking about kind of turning points and this seems like kind of a turning point year as well where that it kind of goes out of fashion yeah you also mentioned the 100 million dollar plus budget for that movie which was another interesting thing when i was going back to the movies of 2010 and looking at like live action non-franchise movies that did have 100 million dollar budgets like salt is another one I, I rewatched Salt. I'm sad that we didn't get to have any Salt jokes on this podcast. I also remember seeing Salt in theaters again alone. I guess I went to the movies alone a lot in 2010. Um, but Salt has a $110 million budget. I, and it's like, I, I mean, I understand why it's an action film and they have a lot of, you know, they're doing a lot of stunts. But I just, they don't spend that much money on movies anymore unless they're giant franchises. It reminds me a little bit of... Um a little bit of like the old guard, you know, the old guard is now like a piece of IP and the expectation I think was mm-hmm. hopefully that there would be like a salt too saltier or something like that. Yeah. They never really got around to it. Salt was pretty successful though. And Angelina at that time, she was, I think where Charlize is now in terms of the, you know, the incredibly strong, powerful female action star. Totally. And I understand why it's just funny. It's a, a thing. It, it was surprising looking at 20 in 2020 at these budgets. Okay, let's let's close out the episode by looking back at my absolutely glorious picks. Um, my okay. six selections for drama, I chose The Social Network. For comedy or horror, I chose Scott Pilgrim versus the World. For blockbuster, I chose Inception. For animated or foreign language, I chose Yorgos Lanthimos' Dogtooth. For wildcard, I chose Exit Through the Gift Shop. And for sequel, I chose Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps. So, do you think it's like too obvious? If if you, you were know? like a straight up normie square, you'll vote for Sean. Yeah, that's the thing. It's just you like basically just listed the movies that show up when you Google 2010 movies. Yeah. And that's your right, but like I don't know, do you feel like people are going to connect to that? What you're doing is what's wrong with American politics. You know, I'm not here <laughs> to sling mud. 
I I'm just a man who loves movies. I love these films. Yeah. I feel strongly Sleepy about all Sean of them. Governing from the center <laughs> with the- And also, you've like completely abandoned your own principles by picking Inception. I yeah, am I'm just I'm true. trying to get special interests out of movie drafts. You know, I'm trying to end gerrymandering here. I'm just trying to talk directly to the people. Do you like Inception? Me too. Do you like Dogtooth, me too. Come join me. In you this don't crusade like Inception. To yeah, <laughs> you lied. You don't like Inception. You said that on this podcast. You don't. I don't know like what it. you guys are talking That's about. Fine. I don't know. I, I, what I did is I built I built a rock solid foundation of of thought leadership, and I'm I'm proud of of what we all did here today. Um, any any closing thoughts? What do you guys think is the movie that we are going to get the most? I can't believe you left this off. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be Unstoppable or On Sunday. Unstoppable should have been in Blockbuster, but Sean screwed us all because I, it only made like $85 billion domestic, I think. So it would, did not qualify for Blockbuster. $85 million of the domestic box office is not busting a block. That's not, definitionally, that does not qualify. So uh, well, let's, there, there are a few films. You're right about Unstoppable. We didn't mention Unstoppable. It's a great movie. I think... I, in the same way I didn't add rom-com, I didn't add action. And maybe that would have been the best way to, to account for Tony Scott's final film, which as listeners of the rewatchables know, I think we all love. It's just a great, hugely entertaining movie. A couple of other ones that we left off that I think are pretty important. Animal Kingdom, the Australian crime mm-hmm. drama. Great movie. Mm-hmm. The Other Guys, the Adam McKay, yep. Will Ferrell collaboration. Uh, Greenberg, really like Greenberg. Noah Baumbach's mm-hmm. incredibly cranky LA story. Um, Get him to the Greek. That's sure. a movie that people seem to like. You mentioned on Sunday, Chris. I can't believe you betrayed Villeneuve. Denis. Well, I've actually got scar tissue by not getting prisoners in the Deacons Hall of Fame. So Denis and I uh, are are planning our own podcast. We're recording it in his basement tonight. <laughs> Chris, where are you at on Dune? You good? Yeah, man. Nothing but confidence in Denis. Nothing but confidence in him. Um, I do want to shout out a couple of other movies from t- 2010. Is that cool? Feel free. I want to say that uh, Frozen is an incredible horror movie and it's terrifying. It's about a bunch of teenagers who get stuck in a ski lift. Uh, that is just about as scary as it, you can imagine. It's like the ski lift stops at, at like sunset and they get, have to spend the night on the mountain and decide whether to jump off the ski lift and there are wolves involved. So that's a great one. Uh, I also am uh, very fond of um, the cinema of Breck Eisner, as we've talked about before. And I love uh, his take on The Crazies, which is a Timothy Oliphant, uh, Rada Mitchell horror jam that I really like. And gosh, is there anything else I would like to shout out? Chris, Breck Eisner is the son of Michael Eisner, former I'm Disney CEO. Um, did you guys consider Fish Tank 2010 or 20 or 2009? What is it, Amanda? What did you th- What do you think? Well, you had it on your letterbox of 2010. So I, th- I, I fish tank is, mm. is mm. up there for me. Yeah. I think it was January 2010 when it was released in America. So it technically would qualify. And it actually might be better than almost every movie that we talked about. So that's a yeah. that's that's tough that we overlooked that. What any One of any the other most jarring viewing experiences? Very upsetting movie. Very powerful movie. Any other any other leftovers, Amanda, that you want to cite? I just think it's notable that, you know, we talked about the social network, obviously, which did not win uh, Best Picture, but we did not acknowledge really any of the Oscar picks of this year. If you if you look at the Oscars, I mean, you know, obviously the King's Speech wins, which the less said about that, the better. 
But um, the fighter, I talked a bit about it. Black Swan, Sean, which you mentioned, the kids are all right was in the mix. Mm. 127 hours. Remember that one? Um, so the we just the Oscars got it completely wrong this year, in our opinions. You know, it's a big oversight. And and a lot of these movies are not mentioned because of the very weird parameters around the categories that I created. But no True Grit. That's true. Which I don't think has a big reputation. And I read True Grit, the novel, the, the Charles Portis novel, for the first time this year. And it was one of those, like, you know, pizza is good kind of moments where I was like, oh, wow, this is just amazing. <laughs> like, this is so, so, this totally lives up to the hype and the reputation of it. And... I, you know, the 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 movie, the Coen Brothers version of the movie is so much more faithful to the book and to the tone of the book than that original John Wayne version for which he won Best Actor in the 60s. Um, but I just, I don't even know where True Grit fits in in this kind of construction of what we did here. Likewise, 127 hours, you know, that's like a kind of interesting, mostly incredibly difficult to watch Danny Boyle movie about James Franco struggling between two rocks and, you know, it, that doesn't fit into the sequel category or the animated or foreign language category. So we just, we overlooked it. I hope people will understand. Um, Chris, uh, enjoy Winter's Bone tonight. I hope um, you get something <laughs> meaningful out of that rewatch. Amanda, is there anything else on your rewatch list that you're going to check out before we exit 2010 forever? That's a great question. You know, it was fun revisiting a lot of them. Salt is really stupid, but I had a nice time. I... I think it's probably time for another social network. I mean, I, I think I rewatch that movie every six months and it has not been, it's been six months for me and we're obviously coming up on the anniversary and obviously Facebook and its intentions and origins are as relevant as ever, unfortunately. Let's just say that on the, on the big picture, we have an amazing fall for the three of us, honestly, because we have a brand new film by Aaron Sorkin. We have a brand new film by David Fincher. And we have the 10-year anniversary of The Social Network. So we're going to have a lot of opportunity to talk about a lot of stuff that we really care about. And it's the 10-year uh, both- anniversary of Jackass 3D, too. So we have that going for us. <laughs> what I'll, I promise you to do is that if we do a Jackass pod, I'll recreate one stunt from Jackass for you guys. <laughs> Which one? I get I to pick. Know. I'll pick. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. no. <laughs> Okay, this has been very fun. Chris Ryan, Amanda Dobbins, thank you guys very much. Please tune into The Big Picture. We'll be back next week talking about a movie that probably is not Tenet. Stay safe and wear a mask. Bye.